from Tacoma, Washington, down to Sacramento, California, West Coast. And um, I currently live and work out of Northeast Portland, Oregon, and I work in research-based art, um, education, translation, printmaking, video, and other socially engaged art projects. So very kind of multimedia and interdisciplinary stuff for the most part yeah and what was your first introduction into like becoming an artist to realizing that you could format your life around a practice that was art based (laughs) that's a good question (laughs) my first realization that I could format my life around art making okay um that's a hard question in that like when I was a teenager I was so indignant about um, the arts being cut in my high school in Sacramento, California. So I really feel like um, that outlet that I had as a child and into a teenager being threatened by people that don't get the value of an art education for young people, I was pissed. Mm. And so like my senior project when I was 18 was about the value of an art education and like don't take this thing away from me and don't take it from the people that are going to come up through this high school after me and so when I got to Berkeley when I when I got to UC Berkeley and started studying I continued to you know do art and study the value of art in different ways and also worked in elementary schools and things so I can't really say that like there was a decision to format my life around art so much as like it was always just like I need this thing in my life I need this outlet this form this these possibilities to be with other people and also just to understand the world around me so yeah it's hard to say that so is the question also like when did I realize that like as a working adult that I could like make enough money to buy beans and rice to do art? Is that part of the question? <laughs> I think so. Okay. You know, like I think that's like a layer of it. It's like, so how do you survive? You know, how yeah. do you make it? Right. With like, like formatting your own path. Right. Um, that's a really good question. So I think... In some ways, um, hmm, yeah, that is such a, that's a good question. I think maybe, yeah, just one, like, experience leads to another, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so being in college and studying art, there was a moment where I thought I was going to major in, like, development studies, and then I found that situation very fraught, and so then I switched (laughs) to the, like, interdisciplinary studies field, that's what they called it. And so, um, yeah, I always was just interested in this way that 
art can um, engage young people, but also like the way it translates from one community to another in terms of diaspora. So thinking the way that people in the African diaspora or indigenous people of different communities can like essentially um, like grapple with and challenge hegemonic forces in the world that they live in through their artistic expressions. So like, I can't really say like, I guess in the most recent moment, if I were to say the moment I realized I could format my life to like make the legal tender to keep doing the thing that is just so urgent in a way of surviving in a non like capital way would really just be within the last like four years. So yeah, like probably like 2012, 2013, realizing the ways that I had to treat city dollars and like county dollars and municipal dollars and federal dollars as like a prepay, like give me this money. Yes, I will say the things in the form of a grant, but like give us this money to do this stuff. I think that that's really only happened in the last three or four years because there's only a certain amount of well, I don't say only as if to like depreciate it or whatever, but like there's only there's a, an amount of my emotional labor or my loving labor or intellectual labor that can do the things, but then there's a certain amount of like resources that I wouldn't I would need to carry out like the urgencies that I work within in my community, and so I'm just like give us space, give us the money to do the things okay, I will go through these steps because I'm, I'm at that point with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so as far as, like, education goes, you say you went to UC Berkeley, and was that experience positive for you, or have you found that going through an institution has been something that you've had to, like, deconstruct over the course of your artistic practice after? Yeah, I think that um, in some ways... Under, like, my undergrad experience at UC Berkeley, just, like, floundering in the miasma of possibility and trying to be a human at that institution, especially coming from, like, a low-income high school like Highlands High in Sacramento. Like, getting there and just being like, I'm super underprepared. Billy and Chad has been out here eating grilled cheese sandwiches that their mom brought to their room in their air-conditioned houses, and they are so prepared. And they had all the AP classes, they had all the things... And I'm out here like, what now? What are we doing? Um, So, yeah, that was difficult. Just like a certain coming from a certain class and like town and part of a town and stuff and and getting to school like UC Berkeley and trying to figure it out. Like that's a challenge within itself is like the elitism and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I think undergrad and grad school, I've always been challenged by... I think a certain kind of like dominance of the discourse from fucking white dudes, from straight white dudes out here just like, think about this and this is how we're framing this and this is what this is called. And you're just like, that's funny because you're calling it that and I don't even know what that means, but that's fine. And then also like this practice means something very different for you than for me your positionality is very different than mine. So I've always just been challenged by that um, in art 
or academic spaces and just trying to like I think find individuals within an institution that you can trust and that can be like even as a teenager like I could trust my art teacher like that was in part one of the reasons that I got into art was because my art teacher did for me what I often try to do with young people both in like children or in high schools that I work in or at the college that I teach at like try to like throw somebody a rope Mm -hmm. just to like climb up out of the things that they're in right Mm -hmm. um and so my art teacher threw me that rope and like I try to throw that rope to other people Mm because like we're just drowned in like this fucking white dude's discourse on the things all the fucking time sorry to cuss but you know (laughs) it's okay (laughs) And so how how did you approach like like holding space and calling that shit out? Like what are some of the techniques that you have learned that are workable to like shut down that like really oppressive narrative in institutional spaces? Mm-hmm. Well, that's hard to answer in part because I'm like, oh, I'm not about to state my tactics on the record. This is a covert operation, Ginger. Okay. I'm like, tell me everything. <laughs> Give it this away. Is a covert operation. So that's my first impulse. But um, I think, like, yeah, learning how to navigate that. Um, like I said, like finding out who to trust and who to throw the rope to so that they can like join you and then continuing to throw the rope out to people to climb up out of the things that we come from and live in. Um, yeah, I think that if I were to answer that in like a really simple word, like the biggest tactic I think is literally just love. Mm. That's it. That's it. Like I have all kinds of tactics in terms of like, (sighs) words that are useful to a certain audience when you write a grant application or like other tactics of like trying to get other like folks of color and like QTPOC hired at institutions or in on a project or just suggesting different people like you know um, those are all tactics but at the end of the day I think that it all comes down to like a practice of like just trying to brutally love each other and just like eviscerate our enemies just mm-hmm. kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no I really I really want to like I really like I think that in terms of like I just I was talking with some of my my students the other day and uh because part of their part of the things that I'm working on this year is like what does a decolonized curriculum look like in an art school and so then I'm like, yeah, I don't know yet. I'm trying. Like, do you want to figure this out with me? Because I'm not going to act like I have figured it out after, like, you know, however, you know, many years, 15, 20 years of being in it, or like art education, if I've figured out the decolonized curriculum and what the steps one through 10 are or whatever, like, it's not that easy. Like, in part, the structure, those steps is what a colonized mindset does. So I'm just like, what are we doing? Um, And so then I showed that, like, basically, I we read some articles and we talked about what a decolonized curriculum looks like and we talked about why I try to be very transparent from the beginning about, like, you know, there's going to be way less white dudes in this course than maybe you see in other courses and this is why. And so then when they, like, one of the students, I have this thing in my 
um, classes where my students can submit anonymously concerns or suggestions about the class. Like, this student's making me uncomfortable, I found this really offensive, this is too hard, all this kind of stuff, without, like, thinking that I'm going to somehow, like, you know, um, punish them or judge them for, you know, voicing what they need. Mm. And so one of my students was like, uh, can we talk about decolonized research methodologies again? Because I still feel like I don't get it. I was like, okay. And so what I ended up doing was like, I put up my website and I was like, just look at these thumbnails. Any of the projects that you see on here, like whatever jumps out to you, I will tell you the kinds of things that like, ended up being what I think is a decolonized like research methodology in that. And the sum of the answer at the end was just like a, a, a deep sense of love in all of these projects and looking out for people, making sure that young people's voices are incorporated in different projects. Um, yeah, like this idea, and also this idea, I think, one idea that I, I really try to think of in navigating these systems, spreading these systems, which I'm still, I'm re-challenging myself about the idea, but this idea of you're either at the table or on the menu. Oh, shit. And so what does it mean for your art practice rather than to put people on the table? Like, what does it mean for your art practice to bring them to the table? Like, instead of putting them on the menu for a consumption of, like, this is how these people live, or look how much they suffer, or aren't they pretty? Rather that kind of consumption, like, what does it mean to, like, bring them to the table and be like, what are we doing? What do you think? What do you need? All that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm often thinking of that as well. Anyways, that's all. That's a lot of words. <laughs> this format is dangerous. I just want to say that. I just want that to be stated on the record. Oh, my God. That needs to be said. Go on. It is dangerous. Oh, but it's decolonized, you know? It's like. That's exactly right. Like, the whole reason I do this podcast in this format is because so often, like, my friends and my family members and my peers are misrepresented in press. That's right. So it's like, this is not for them. This is for us and our communities to be like, oh shit, that's how I'm feeling. Yeah. Totally. No sad. Also, a friend of mine, it makes me think of a friend of mine, like, this time last year, I was just about to go back to Brazil and visit some friends, like my chosen family down there, and someone that lives in Portland, lives and works in Portland, was also going to be there doing a trip, like, for their practice, like, they're doing research, they work in anthropology, mm. black, queer, tenured professor, and so we're, like hanging out in Brazil and I'm introducing her to my friends and stuff down there and I'm like so tell me about your project like what are you up to down here and she's like we'll see and I was like I was just so baffled because it was like but you work in anthropology like shouldn't you have something she's like I absolutely will not arrive here with these like assumptions and presume that like my frame of research is going to arrive onto the people that live here and they're going to reveal to me the answers that I want to, like, do these other kinds of things. She's like, I literally showed up. And we're talking about water. That was it. That was it. And I was like, oh, my God. Can you imagine if, like, anthropology had been that like that way for at least, like, 
the last, I don't even want to say 100 years. Like, even if it had just been that way for the last 20 fucking years. Like, if it had been that way since, like, the early 90s, it would be a different world. We'd already have won the things. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I'm into it. I'm, I think it's the best way to go about it. and divide us still fighting for equal rights still creating for equal rights still loving for equal rights on a physical plane where the properties of science and math still need a place marker to account for the unknown we have zero reasons to be afraid where dreams come from where they reside where communities come together to express create and exchange ideas that is the space where our power comes from what is your practice about? Like, what what do you practice as an artist aside from being the teacher or the person that holds that space? Like, what kind of ideas that you do you sift through personally mm-hmm. in your work? Yeah, that's a fraught question, but I'm gonna try. <laughs> I'm gonna really try. Um, so I I work in printmaking a bit. Like I, I've mostly in screen printing so I really kind of love the immediacy and the power of press so Mm -hmm. working in like screen printing and um, self-publishing and like making zines or booklets and things that's one thing and then also just I and I work a bit in video and like audio recordings and using found not found images, but existing images, be they from my own family archive or from city archives or things, and then kind of using those images and pairing them with oral histories or or um, recordings, in part because I'm really interested in what um, print and sound, like what can we add to like what can we not add to history but what does it look like when we're like archiving our present and also our pasts Mm -hmm. yeah like for example my my family my grandmother was born in Blytheville Arkansas Mississippi County Arkansas and my family she started there and then they moved through the Midwest and working mostly agriculturally and down into Arizona where my dad's generation was born in Casa Grande, Arizona, black family. And they worked, my dad's generation were still in cotton fields. You know, like the cotton gin is invented, but they're still clearing cotton fields of what like the machines leave behind. Mm. So like asking them, like, what was it like to get up at dawn and clear cotton fields? in hostile, hot-ass Arizona, where there shouldn't even be fucking cotton, first of all, but that's fine, (laughs) you know? So, like, I'm interested in what our immediate, like, stories of, like, family and love can insert it into, like, larger historical narratives and things Mm. reveal. That's one part of my practice is working very closely with my family, and also just because I want to know and understand, like... How I was born in Oregon, where we are right now, and so what was the decision to move from Arizona to Oregon, 
and how I've understood it through like recording oral histories with my family is um, like they picked berries seasonally in Oregon. And my dad was like, it's nice up here. Let's move the family to Oregon. There's some potential here. It's green, et cetera, you know. Which I think is so funny because, like, that shows you in some ways how hostile and terrible Arizona is. That, like, a black family is like, let's move to Oregon, also a racist fucking place. That's a lot. It's very interesting to me. So, yeah, my practice, again, I'm just really interested in a, a certain kind of collective catharsis that I feel within my own family, but also the communities that I work in or collaborate with, like, what can we do with each other? Mm. Um, you know, how can, how can we be... How can we be, literally? Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and how is your family's reaction to you, like, um, participating them in your art practice? Like, I, I think in some moments, like... Because that's, like, one of my projects, and I have, like, a bunch of other ones, but, like, that's one project where, in some ways, like, I, I think of that work in some ways as like an accountability measure to other projects that I would do. Like if I'm not going to ask my auntie a question, I'm not going to ask your auntie that question. Like, excuse me, what, you know, like you need to be out here for people and like treating them like you're, they're your own family in some ways. Mm. But so then when I am like, let's have like one of the first times that I recorded audio with my family, I was like, grandma's 88th birthday is coming up. Like, what would have been her 88th birthday because she passed already. Um, So let's have a barbecue and let's, like, share pictures and stories about her and about the family, you know. Um, And I think in some moments they're like, wait, why are you recording this again? But then they're already just like, whatever, and just, like, doing their other stuff. And so it's kind of like a background thing, you know. But, I mean, we love pictures and we love to talk, so... It works out. And then, like, maybe three or four months later, once I've edited something, they're like, oh, is that what you're doing? <laughs> share, share, share. <laughs> look what my cousin did. Or, like, look what my niece did, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that they get there's a certain amount of trust that you need. And then later, also just, like, this is what this is. And then getting what it's for in those moments, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, archiving where we are right now. Because it's like so many family pictures in a physical way can get lost like in storage or from a flood or from forced migration. And so like those are physical objects. But like think about like those other forces that literally like silence your mouth and make you carry your body a certain way and all those kinds of things. So just trying to create martial resources towards creating space and opportunity for us to just even reflect on ourselves and each other mm-hmm. is really important to me and um I'm interested in what that looks like in my own neighborhood even with people that aren't my family mm-hmm. so my practice in the past couple of years has really been working with young people and other groups and community members around gentrification in my neighborhood in northeast Portland and Portland you know is you can read in different articles or uh, statistics like Portland is the most gentrified city of the century. And it's coincidentally the whitest city in the country. Those things are independent of each other. Nah. <laughs> Damn. It's just like, I know that. people are like, oh, Portland is so white. It's like the whitest city in the country. And it's like, as such, it's the most gentrified <laughs> city of the 
century. Century. <laughs> Anyways, so like, what is that? What does it mean to just um, not just kind of have like the usual blurb of like that's terrible and I don't get to do my favorite things like, but like, what impact does that have on young people? You know, like I have done a couple of projects. Um, at Jefferson High School, which is like the only predominantly black high school in the state of Oregon. And for the first time, like this year, or maybe just last year, but I think this year, it's no longer the most predominantly black K through 12. Like the elementary school is the most predominantly black one. But both of those schools have like dramatically dropped in their black population. And that's because of displacement from this this community from north northeast portland into what they call the numbers um so that's like east like from 82nd over to like integration like 232nd ave and like jefferson high is like um in a neighborhood where it's more like 7th or 12th ave right mm-hmm. so like many many city blocks and so there are students that will take the bus two hours in the morning and maybe two hours in the evening, depending on rush hours. So we're talking about like three to five hours on the bus every day, just so that they can be in a place with people that share their culture. Mm. Right. And so like, there are questions that we need to ask them to understand like how these bigger structures, like it's not just that like white people are in these neighborhoods drinking microboos and they're loud and fucking disrespectful. It's literally that like, where can I go to school and be with people that look like me and care about me? And like, how come it takes me five hours to get there? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And also, yeah. So just like, and like, what does it mean to like in an art project, martial resources to learn how to record a video or be on the radio or screen print a t-shirt so that like, that conversation can be amplified to people beyond just like a small group of um, people in North East Portland or just like a teacher and the students. Like, what does it mean to create platforms so that people are actually listening to what the students have to say or young people have to say, you know? Mm. So, yeah. And do you think that, um, do you think that because Portland is named the most gentrified city, city in the country, that's like their way of saying, well, it's done already. Like we don't have to do the work. It's already the, it's already happening and, or happened. Like, I'm just trying to understand like what the consensus is for like not acknowledging and like moving forward in better practices as a, as a place. And this is not my place. Yeah. Right. Maybe I'm way off. Oh my God. No, you're not. The language that we use to talk about Portland is fraught as fuck because when you say Portland is the whitest city in the country, it's the whitest city in the United States. It exact, it it absolutely sounds like a done deal. Mm. It's like, it just ended up that way. Right. And it's an erasure of how we got to this point, which has been, generation after generation ensuring through force and violence that that would be so Mm. because some people are like well I don't think people of color like the rain or whatever like they'll make up different excuses to like why Portland is 
you know, the whitest city. But the other thing that it does, like, aside from Portland being the only state in the union that had racially exclusionary language in its constitution, there were, like, there's a phrase in the constitution that literally says, no Negroes, no Chinamen, no Indians, and no Kanakas. Like, it was illegal for us to be here. And for black people, that meant that every six months, they would publicly lash you. So you could end up here and work for six months, and then you had to get the fuck out. Otherwise, they would publicly beat you. Right? So, like, with the lash laws, and then also the sundown laws of, like, don't be out, like, after sundown, or I don't even don't be out, like, get out of town after sundown, right? Like, these laws are what made this the whitest city. And then some people will be like, but that was 150 years ago. And you're like, it very wasn't. It was not 150 years ago. It was, I don't know, I can't count right now because I'm on vacation. But it was not 150 years ago. Anyway, so there's that as people like want to act like it was in the past. But then there's like these very immediate things that are happening right now that it's just like, a complete erasure of who has held out and is still holding out and the way that like we live and deal with each other and love with each other and like our values are infused in this place Mm -hmm. and like the city wanting to capitalize on some of those things but not actually like have those things inform the decisions that they make to lay out the city and continue to form the city you know so it's like yeah, that language is very, very fraught and it's terrible, especially considering how many people being pushed to the numbers and how many refugee and immigrant children we have and, like, third, fourth, fifth generation, like, black children we have. Like, they're still here and they're going to be having kids. Like, yeah. there's also statistics that say Portland's not going to be the whitest city in, like, 10, 20, 30 years because of these folks here. Right. Mm. But when you use that language, like you're enabling a system that's going to do their damnedest to push them the fuck out, too. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's very frustrating. And I think that one of the um, things that I have read in the past year with um, my collaborator, Lisa Bates, who teaches urban studies at Portland State University, um, is by Clyde Woods. And it's from an article called Life After Death. And it talks about the tools of the coroner. And so our very language we're talking about, in particular in Portland and many other cities, about black life in cities, we're speaking at the language of the tools of the coroner. So we're already assuming death. Mm. Like the body is on the mortuary slab, it's dead, and our language is really just the tools to understand the cause of death. But when you take those tools... And you put them in the hands of the surgeon, the same fucking tools, those tools are life-giving. And you realize that the patient isn't even dead. Like, you, you literally could be saying the things to save a life, but you're actually saying the things to, like, promote more deaths. And that's one of the problems with the way we talk about Portland. And the, state of, and the whole entire state of Oregon. And I think... I'd even venture to say the Northwest, because Seattle is a very similar situation in terms of education. And dare I say the entire 
country. <laughs> Maybe the world? I don't know. This is the problem. This is the problem. <laughs> this is the problem. Stumble down the road, I see it go. Stumble down this road alone Who to turn to and What do I do? Stumble down this road and I see no one but me. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I see gentrification becoming more and more problematic in that space. And a lot of like young, affluent, like white males, like, and also queer male, queer white males, like, saying like well I align with you because I'm a queer person it's like well like I've seen queerness being used in really toxic ways and your statement about the 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 tools really reminds me of that I'm like Mm -hmm. well you can't use your queerness to align with the struggle of like genocide of indigenous peoples it's a little different you know like if you are a, a white person a white man and you identify as queer, does that give you agency to destroy the people that you're trying to align with or push them out of the community? And so I'm wondering, I'm just kind of brainstorming here, but I'm wondering if what is the what is the space for queer people in Portland and what what is your work surrounding your queerness and your activism, if you want to call it activism? Do you feel mm-hmm. like you're an activist? I know that's such a loaded word, right? Yeah, it is. And when some people say it, I'm like, okay. And then when others, I'm like, ugh, underwhelmed by it. So, yeah. It's not a word that I, like, add to my bio or when I'm introducing myself to anybody or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah. So, um, it's a very good question. I've been thinking a lot about... um, trying to bring together my thoughts around gentrification as settler colonialism into gentrification. So land grab, Mm -hmm. like that whole trajectory and what it has done to, um, what it has done to us in terms of like getting to live in our full selves and in thinking of queerness and thinking of any, yeah. And thinking of, any gender non-conforming, gender non-binary folks, queer, lesbian, gay, trans folks, two-spirit folks, like thinking of all the ways that like capitalism thrives on essentially always favoring cisgendered white male, assigned male at birth bodies. Mm. And what that actually means how that plays out in a city or in a city like Portland or in any city in terms of the way that space is shared or not shared and what can be possible within a space in terms of getting to step in with your entire self. Mm. Um, And what it also means in our like educational systems when there'll be classes, like 
workshops or things that are built around like a very narrow cisgendered idea of like what a woman's role is or a male's role and within a particular community like in the black community in portland at sei it's a school um in North East Portland, the Boise Elliott neighborhood, that it's an amazing project and school. And it's done so much for the community in terms of like claiming and reclaiming and claiming again space and making sure that pe- like young people have a place to be. So mm-hmm. it's like Jeff High that I mentioned, it's also SEI, which stands for Self Enhancement Inc. Like even in that school, there's a class that's called like Sisters Reflecting Beauty and Brothers Reflecting Brotherhood. Which in some ways is like, this is what's expected of you in our community as like this body that we're projecting onto you. And Mm -hmm. so I think so many, like I've met young people that have had such problems with what is expected of them like in these roles. So there isn't, it's not like gentrification is just about like this direction of white people taking up all the things and pushing us out. It's the ways that we've had to survive in the ways that we've internalized the ways that we think we have to survive and how that manifests in our ideas of gender roles and how we treat each other or like may or may not protect each other from certain influences and so Mm -hmm. I've been really thinking about those things a lot and also reading a book Taliban the Witch by Sylvia Frederici and the second chapter is called The Accumulation of Labor and the degradation of women, Mm -hmm. like, in the development of capitalism. And so it basically traces, like, the loss of the commons, where in the commons, in some ways, like, that was one of the places where women could thrive and lead. Mm -hmm. And so when you strip people of the commons and then you put in waged labor, and then a woman's wages becomes a man's wages, and then women are forced into ways of making money that can include prostitution but prostitution isn't always just selling your body for sex it's literally like these waged worker men's like make me a meal you know like what capitalism does in those cases and then also um just what that means in terms of that land grab land grab disempowering women and the knowledges that they've used to support their community so these witch trials and all these things it's not just like we don't like that because we like god it's literally like we're trying to continue the land grab and you're in the way because you're worried about feeding your kids in your community and you won't have it so we're gonna call you a witch and fucking put you in a metal cage and drop you in the river do you know what i'm saying like (laughs) that whole history but then at the same time like So that happening in Europe and then thinking about like that happening in conjunction with the absolute and like devastating exploitation of African and indigenous women in the new world, Mm. like all of those things at once moving along that like historical continuum into the present moment when we unpack what it means to be in public space in our cities, it's not like those are divorced. Like people are like, well, no, I just wanted to touch your hair or grab your butt in the club. Cause you're so exotic. And it's like, mm-hmm, yep. Witch trials or whatever. Like, you know, like you have to unpack the entire <laughs> yeah. history. Um, and so when your original question was like, if a like white queer, you know, assigned male at birth person is trying to align themselves with, black or indigenous or other BIPOC communities through their queerness it's like 
yes, you have felt the brunt of white supremacist, heteronormative capitalist, imperial patriarchy. <laughs> you have, and you, you have much to contribute in obliterating toxic masculinity that feeds into it. At the same time, I need you to do more work in understanding your positionality and the ways that you actually benefit from those things so that you can actually be an ally or be solidary with us. Because mm. if you want to flatten it into one thing and jump up and transcend and talk to me and code switch to me like, hey, girl, and stuff, like, I'll melt your face off. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> yes. I will. That's how I feel about it. Yes. yes. But that's the thing that's so insidious sometimes about, like, like, whiteness and, like, not just, like, you know, not just people that are trying, that are suffering in capitalism and, and wanting to build from a, like, in some ways a shared experience or life, um, I don't even know the words, but, like, it's, like, these things have played out very differently for your ancestors and mine. Like, just do some more homework, you know? Right, right. Just do some more homework. And then even with folks that, like, want to somehow identify or be solidary, and it's not even through a lens of queerness, it's, like, through, like, or I'm Polish, or I'm Irish, or whatever. It's just, like, again, please just let's have a more nuanced conversation and like, like let's pull up some old newspaper clippings of what it meant to work like in the peonage system for black people versus poles on these mm. like former plantations like real different mm-hmm. real different like let's just look at it anyways sorry. yeah no it's real i think that i think that that calling out is so important right now especially like when it feels like everything is going quickly And we are in this really interesting point where we have the opportunity to, like, engage with people by, like, sending them an instant message or, you know, like, in these ways that we haven't really had before. Yeah. So, like, what do we do with that? Like, how do we how do we continue in a good way where we're, like, working with our communities and acknowledging the space that we need to be holding, but also, like not attacking but just like putting jabs and like inserting ourselves into spaces where we were not allowed before like how to use technology in those ways and that's something that I've been thinking about a lot and maybe you have some ideas and I know that that's like when I was talking to Bart he's like that's exhausted like white people don't matter to me like done you know Mm -hmm. and I agree with that a lot but in my community as I'm doing work, I'm noticing that everywhere I go, I have to come up against these walls and like I'm exhausted and a lot of my community members are exhausted and like how to continue to engage in spaces with people who are there like, I get you, but just only in this certain situation or area. And um, I don't know, I don't, I don't really know what I'm asking or what I'm saying, but I'm just, I'm just curious about like, where do we put our energy? Like, what's the most important as we move forward from this point? Like, Mm -hmm. with the access we have of technology. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe I'll try to answer this question in two parts. So the first part would be, 
a project, an art project. Wow, I'll talk about art and my yeah. practice. Oh my God, can you believe it? <laughs> Just kidding. Do it. Um, one project that I, I think can speak to this that I do and then just kind of rattle on some other thoughts. So one project I have um, is called You Read TV. And so that's U-R-E colon T-A-D-T-V. You Read TV. And so that colon is there right in the middle of the You Read because that actually stands for the United Republic of the African Diaspora. And so the word republic has a colon on the re, because it's not an actual political body at all, or even pretending to be one. It's regarding the public, Mm -hmm. or rather like addressing or responding to the public that is the African diaspora. Mm -hmm. And so that's like publics, that's plural, plural, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on if you're an African descendant, on the continent, in Europe, in the Caribbean, in South America, North America, wherever you may be. So it's You Read TV is a project that has, at this point, like 20 videos from emerging artists of the African diaspora that were gleaned from a global open call. And so there were something like 80 submissions Um, last year this time last year when we put out the call and then looking through all those and then sifting through kind of the first iteration of it and then figuring out how some of the others can come in later on and then also getting new submissions or um you read press so united republic of the african diaspora press like producing new videos with the artists in the cities that we might go to so Mm -hmm. constantly collaborating having a very porous kind of selection of videos that speak to this public that is the African diaspora. Um, Because TV is banal as fuck. It's narrow, it's stereotypical. And then also, like, in terms of putting a a a TV, and I'm doing air quotes, like a TV channel in an art gallery, also challenging, like, this um, institutional framing of blackness that comes from an art institution that can also be very narrow... So in like those ways, the internet was so useful in putting out this call to the diaspora and places and people I've never met before and being like, the audience is the diaspora. Like, what do you have to say to each other? Like, what do we, we have to say to each other? Mm. Um, and so what does it mean to be an Afro-Cuban, Afro-Brazilian, a, you know, black person in the U.S. to be a... Um, like Afro-Dutch or Afro-German and like what do you have to say to other black people around the world and like what does that look like in a video and in a compilation of videos right Mm. so the internet I think that technology is useful in that way to really just create these platforms where we can take these platforms and, and see ourselves and exchange with each other in ways that are useful to us Mm. right Mm. Um, so that's one way a concrete way that I think is interesting but in terms of like what me and Lisa have been calling like a black spatial imaginary eliding or sidestepping the white spatial imaginary completely while also subverting it like 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 Bart was saying, like I'm just not even dealing with them. Like mm-hmm. really center yourself first and your audiences first. And then if on the second or third or fourth wave of reflection it ends up doing something for a certain fraction of a white audience and then on that level of another fraction of a white audience, great. Or and then also I'll add to that, 
Like, but there are people out here that are very interested in actively educating white people. I will, like, if you are a white person and you're looking for that, I will direct you to them. I am not going to be doing that, but I will direct you to them. And so I think the biggest challenge for me with that is, like, the way that technology or the resources that we have don't add to an anxiety that I don't want to do that work, but they add to, like, this momentum of... Um, there's somebody out there doing that work and I can direct you to them. Mm. And there was someone visiting um, Tamika Butler that is the executive director for the Los Angeles Neighborhood Trust visiting in Portland a couple weeks ago. And she's like, I have a photo of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in my office. Not because like they're my absolute favorites or because, like, in this, like, generic way, but it's a very specific reminder to me that, like, Martin Luther King could not have done what he did without Malcolm X. Like, Malcolm X, like, white people were, like, the fear that Malcolm X emitted made it. So then they were like, oh, you're over here doing this? Am I okay? That's not so bad. I can do that. This I can do. So what does it mean, like, in our communities to be in that room and, like, not, like, look across the room and be like, oh, my God, he's out here just dealing with these white folks, and I cannot deal with it. And he's just like, but, like, how do you instrumentalize his, like, proximity and willingness to work with them to, like, good, you got that, and now I got this piece. Instead of, like, that general liberal inclination of, like, no, nah, I just don't fuck with you. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But then also the ability of, like, in other cases to, like, amputate and be like, no, 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 you're out. <laughs> I don't even want to deal with this. You're actually, no, that's, you're out of the, you're not coming to the good out. That's important. Yeah, no, it seems really, it seems really decolonized too in this way of like, I don't know, we're so invited to practice lateral violence on each other. That's as, right. You know, and I think just what you described is like such a beautiful way of like contextualizing like, we all have different roles that we can play to, like, break down this fucking crazy-ass system. Right. Right. And, I mean, when I... That's the other thing that, like, when people hear me talk about class warfare and white people, they're immediately like, oh, God! You know, they're like, oh, no! Um, and, like, I have white people in my family, you know? Mm-hmm. Like... My my mother is Scandinavian, Irish, and indigenous. So there are white people in my own family. Mm. And so I'm not saying these things out of literally, like, fuck them. I'm saying this out of, like, a loving way that I have with my own family of, like, how can we ex- exercise? <laughs> <laughs> so we can get these, like... You know, get these things out of you. Like, let's all be living, okay? Like, I'm not saying this. Like, when I say, like, I don't fuck with you or I'm not fucking with the white spatial imaginary, (laughs) it literally just means that, like, my slice of energy is going towards other things. But that doesn't mean that, like... I mean, I, I, like, it just means... Yeah, I'm I'm stuttering at this point. But it's just, like, it's coming from a place of love, Mm. always. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. It does, for real. One day I was chilling in the stars, talking to all the people on Mars. Hey, star, how you been? Those white folks changed the name to Orion. 
but we fight for the truth We fight for the love and we fight for the you That hunger for your knowledge Tearing down the strong tall walls of bondage We fight for truth, we fight for truth We fight for truth On landing in the stars On landing in the stars Don't forget about the stars And the stars and the stars what advice would you give to yourself, the artist, um, that you were 10 years ago? <laughs> These are like... The- this is such a dangerous podcast, Ginger. <laughs> I just... I appreciate you. You know we'll be friends forever now. <laughs> I appreciate you, but I'm already like... Like, when you were like, let's go into the last part, I was like, great. And at the same time, in the back of my mind, I was like, oh my god, I've already said so much, but... Hopefully we can just wrap it up in a bow and it's going to be great. I don't have, I won't listen to it for a few months, but then this last bit, I'm just like, Oh man, you really, you're really getting it in there. Okay. Myself artist 10 years ago. Um, it's probably the same advice I give myself now and I have it tattooed on my ribs. Really? Yes. So I will, I, see I will lift I will lift my death row records hoodie from my body. West Coast is the best coast. I will lift my hoodie and show you my tattoo. Okay. And one of my tattoos. And so it says what does it say? Hold on, I remember. <laughs> it says Name Cavin as me as daughters. Name Cavin as me as daughters. Mm-hmm. So it's like it translates as my pain doesn't even fit. And so it's a line from the first stanza of a poem by um, Carlos Drummond de Andrade, Brazilian poet, and it's a poem called Big World. And the poem starts like this, like, the world is big. And it, it, it kind of ends with this line of like, I'm, I, no, it says, no, this is the way the poem goes. It goes, no, I'm trying to translate in my head at the same time, so it's not working. It's like, no, my heart is not bigger than the world. The world is big. No, my heart is not bigger than the world. In it, my pain doesn't even fit. Mm-hmm. And so by tattooing on my ribs, like, my pain doesn't even fit. It's just like 10 years ago, and now I still need the advice of, like, there is so much healing and catharsis that we need in this place that we're trying to decolonize and be and survive and that like the world is big and that pain is so huge and like my heart even though I might think it's huge it's not bigger than the world like I can't fit it all and so like just a constant reminder of like you don't have to try to fit it and carry it and in every project address it and chip away at it all at once Mm -hmm. so the advice I would give myself is like your heart can be small like it doesn't have to be as big as the world and the art can serve as this like container and like constantly trying to chip away that pain like yeah just be nice to yourself Mm. (laughs) (laughs) oh that's a long-winded way of saying like that's advice I'd be like you're not so bad okay gosh Oh. If that makes sense. Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> it does. Good. Um, wow. Uh, 
I was like t- gonna cry. <laughs> I was like, dang you! <laughs> You're good. So, I'm not supposed to be crying. <laughs> um, what advice has influenced you? What advice, God? You are not playing around. Okay. What advice? One time when I was teaching in the south of Spain. I got really fucking pissed at the music teacher because I was like, you're not doing your job and you're very comfortable in this very particular position of having a job forever in the like Andalusian government. And you don't give a shit about these kids. And like the neighborhood that we're in is a very poor neighborhood. A lot of like Roma students and just like lower class poor for many generations, mm. like Southern Spanish students. And you just like didn't care. And so one day I got, I got so fucking pissed and I was like leaving the school. Another person saw me and they were like, you don't look well. And I'm like, I'm just really disgusted that like as the foreign like English teaching assistant to this teacher, they're doing a terrible job and I'm going to like kill somebody. And so then he's like, all right, okay, cool, cool. And they went and talked to the principal and um, I didn't want him to, but I was like, I'll figure it out. But he talked to him anyway. And so then there was this really gross kind of alliance that happened in this place. I was like, you know, 20 two or three years old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the teachers were like, there's Sharita over there, like the American. First of all, just like, uh, okay, I guess I'm American, but I don't know, have you met my ancestors? So don't even try to let me into like this, like drink a catch over this way. Like out here, just like undermining our work and mm-hmm. like, to- and just they fucking tried to treat me like shit when I was right I was like you have to give a shit about these students and what art education means to mm. them and I had like one friend at the school I had a couple friends but like my main friend Maria Jose Garcia Navarro she saw me just like really battling with it and I like exploded and I kind of like started to cry in the office and I was just like what? Like, why? Like, how could you, all I'm saying is like, we have to try a little bit, you know, you know, and she, she, we spoke every week as like her trying to get better at her English because she teaches Latin and Greek and English. She's so Japanese. She speaks like eight languages. Dang. She's just like this mother in the South of Spain that likes languages like me. Like I speak five languages. So we'd always geek out about language. So she was like, fuck those bastards. <laughs> and I was like, that's the best advice ever. And then she sent me the actual advice that was the best advice. Is she bought me a pair of earrings because she knows my heart. And she put a letter, she put a small note on this really beautiful paper in an envelope in my mailbox. And it was in Latin because that's what she teaches. And it said, like, Aguilat non common, like, Moscat or something. It's fucking Latin. And it said, Eagles don't eat flies. So there are, like, that's the advice that, like, I always, like, when moments when I'm just, like, so pissed or getting worked up about these f- scum of humans out here doing the things and undermining the work, just, like, eagles don't eat flies. I just don't even have to worry about it. I'm doing other things. Oh, my God. That's the best fucking <laughs> advice. Eagles don't eat flies. It's helpful. Yeah. I have very long answers to all your questions. I'm sorry. No, it's amazing. Okay. um, So this last one is, um, I ask everybody, it's kind of like a soapbox moment. Um, If you could say one thing to the world, using this as your platform, what would it be? That's a very, very hard question. 
I would just say I'm here. I'm here. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I would say. And to like who feels it and knows it, they know that that means that I'm here and just ready for us to do things differently and better. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I can say to the world is like I'm here and I'm working out of a space of love and curiosity and you know wrath I will eviscerate my enemies I'm ready for that if that's what you're ready for so when I say I'm here all those things are wrapped up in that that's all
they take their flight and soar with all their might. The wolf comes out at night. Oh. Just for me